There are no McDonald's in Iceland. No McDonald's in there Iceland. Are no McDonald's in Iceland. Hmm. How are there people? State Department should fix that. <laughs> yes. I guess. There's a Taco Bell, though. <laughs> All comments and opinions in this podcast are those of its participants and do not in any way reflect an opinion of the U.S. government or the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The days of science taking a back seat. So come to America. The ideology are over. Where you can innovate, create, and build. We choose to go to the moon. I believe in science. Welcome to Butway Science from Washington, D.C., where we have scientists talking public policy. I'm Ben Isaacoff, and I am a fellow in Congress. I'm Ben Zalisco. I'm a biochemist. I'm a fellow at the Department of Defense. I'm Laura Van Berkel. I'm a social psychologist. I'm a fellow placed at the National Science Foundation. I'm Asa Rubin. I'm a former pathologist, and I'm a fellow now at the Department of Defense. So on May 22nd, the OECD, which stands for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, there are 36 member countries, including the United States, plus six additional, additional countries, signed the OECD Principles on Artificial Intelligence. These are voluntary guidelines which are designed to ensure that AI systems are designed to be robust, safe, fair, and trustworthy. But, but wait a second. AI still sounds like science fiction to a lot of people. Uh, but the truth is, it's not fiction anymore. What the OECD is doing in all of these countries is extremely relevant and maybe even a little late. AI is here uh, and actually use it every day. It's not something only scientists or fancy governments are doing. You use it every day. Uh, but it might not be uh, exactly what you expect or have in mind uh, from science fiction, things like HAL in 2001, or uh, I forget what the little robot's name in Hitchhiker's uh, Guide was. Yeah, I forget. The, the, the big guy, the guy that says the, the, the depressed robot. 42. Yeah. That, like the, the guy. No, the depressed robot in Hitchhiker's, right? Oh, was yeah. That, or, the, uh, yeah. that Snape played. Okay. <laughs> Wait, can we give an example? What is an example, though, of modern, like currently, that we use every day AI, I think? Our listeners yeah. So, yeah, let's yeah. get into it. So, um, when you do a Google search, for example, you are using AI. Um, how, you know, it's like, how does Google know, uh, you know, A, what you meant to type instead of what you like mm -hmm. poorly spelled, uh, but B, how does it figure out what pages are most relevant to you? Uh, because as we are probably accustomed to or aware of now, our Google search results are uh, custom, they're personal. They're also based on like what time of day it is, where you are, all that kind of stuff. Google didn't program that with if-then statements. They use an AI to figure that out. Uh, another one uh, you may be aware so of. So we're is, just referring to the name AI. What do you mean by AI? What do we mean by AI? So AI um, turns out is very difficult to define. What we mean for the contexts of most available technology right now is software and tools that learn. So you don't program them in a linear fashion where it's just a, the program is a script and you say if this happens you and you think of every single if then mm -hmm. statement or whatever. What happens is you train the program on some kind of existing data or you give it positive or negative reinforcement as it operates in the world. So these are sometimes referred to as machine learning approaches. And right now, for all intents and purposes, there really isn't a distinction between machine learning technologies and AI. When people say AI, we really basically mean machine learning. Now, there can be... But the machine learning is a subset of AI. Yeah, people always add a subset of machine learning. Like you know, it's yeah. it's a little it's a little confusing. I don't think it's like so super informative. Um, there there could be a distinction in the future. We talk about like generalized AI, so that's where we don't have to like spend so much time and effort thinking about how the algorithm is structured and how we train it, but the thing can just go forward and learn on its own, like an actual human or an animal or something. Yeah. 
and there's deep learning as well, but we'll be, yeah. I guess, sort of using them all interchangeably yeah. to talk about yeah. AI and, yeah. and systems. D just real quick, deep learning is like really cool. What deep learning means is the way the algorithm is structured. There are parts, part of what the algorithm is doing is fundamentally unknowable to us as programmers, mm -hmm. which is like very confusing to think about. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's detecting patterns that we can't. Yeah. I just think it's very interesting as um, a comparison of what used to be AI or what people thought was possible and then what is this paradigm shift. There was um, in the, I guess it was the early 2000s, I think, or maybe even in the 90s, so there was a chess game or chess machine that was called Deep Blue and they put it up against one of the greatest chess players ever, Gary Kasparov, and it beat him. Um, but the thing is that it was a very linear kind of uh, program where they had, it was all the moves were basically ca were um, uh, analyzed by the machine and it had weights assigned to them that was largely figured out by the human, by humans who were programming it and it was able to beat them because there's a certain number of, there's only a finite number of moves you can make in chess and you can figure out how to play. And then uh, this was actually what convinced me. So when I, you know, I, in medicine, you know, a, a lot of people are talking about AI now and how it's going to replace everybody and especially pathology and radiology are, are right on the chopping block in my opinion yeah. now oh not in mine oh no i think yeah. oh no well we'll get into that yeah. but i definitely think there's um a lot of potential there but what changed my mind because i used to be very skeptical about it but it was then i learned about uh, alpha go which was the uh the software now that was done with deep learning where it, it taught itself how to play the game go which is a much more complex game there's theoretically basically um, more possible moves in Go than there are atoms in the universe this is like one way people say it. <laughs> so it's basically there's no way a machine could ever go through all the moves. So it had to teach itself how to play by analyzing previous games and then playing itself. And it uh, obliterated four to one, four to one, the best Go player that probably has ever lived. Uh, but what was even weirder about this was that it actually demonstrated a new way of playing Go in the, like, the final game. It started doing these moves that no one understood, that they thought it was broken. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, no, that actually works. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. concerning. So um, so then, yeah, this is like a definite paradigm shift. And I just think it's yeah. nice illustrative of what yeah. machine learning can do. Yeah, it's super cool. And I, and I just like, I really want to emphasize that it is like this kind of crazy cool stuff, like beating the world's best Go player. But it's also like how the post office reads your handwriting. Like yeah. that's that kind of optical character recognition now has gotten super good. Yeah, it's based on AI. Speech recognition by computers has gotten speech recognition by computers now is better than humans. It's, computers can understand speech better than humans now. It's crazy. Yeah. So okay. So I'm, I guess I'm gonna throw the shade on the AI and demystify a little bit. I feel like there's a lot of anthropomorphizing of computers, um, and it's a, a politically hot topic. Like I, I watch a lot of baseball, and uh, pretty much every commercial break. There's StatCast AI is going to talk about calculating the odds of a stolen base. Like, that's an Excel spreadsheet. That's not that impressive. <laughs> you can add a few calculations together and get a probability. That's not the big deal. So people throw around the phrase AI to mean a lot more than it really should. Um, or just to, to show that AI is more than it is. So to demystify it a bit, like a lot of us have used Excel, and you get a spreadsheet, uh, you get a scatter plot, and you can draw a trend line on it. It's called a regression analysis. And... That's pretty intuitive to people that don't deal with computers or deal with a lot of math, that the computer tries to find a line that is close to all the other points. There's a lot of ways it can do that. It can fit to a nonlinear line, uh, like a curve, an exponential function. It can get really sophisticated in the way it matches these dots. And when we say machine learning, that's really all we mean is that when you, you 
show a computer a piece of software, a bunch of data, whether it be a scatter plot or images, it can then say, okay, these kinds of images that you told me are in this category, they have these properties. Therefore, if you give me new images, I can give you a probability that it will be one of these different categories. So like we, there was one example, we show a computer, a bunch of pictures of dogs and wolves, and it tries to tell you, okay, this is a dog, this is a wolf. Um, but as, as is common in these kinds of examples, when they actually found out how the computer was finding out which were the dogs and which were the wolves, it was identifying wolves by the fact that there was snow in the picture. <laughs> and so there's always a problem of monitoring what is the computer actually doing and are you training it the right way? And often AI fails because we didn't train it the right way and we didn't give it the information that it needs. And I, I would say that there's a long way to go to get reliable kinds of performance out of AI that we that we can see on occasion in the most impressive circumstances. Like speech recognition, there are some cases of speech recognition in some kinds of software and some kinds of contexts that can recognize it, quote, better than humans. But in general, there's a long way to go and it's just another computing tool in the way that we use it every day. Yeah, that's right. General is not part of this discussion right now. Like the, the, these things, like if you want to build a really amazing wolf versus dog separator, a speech recognition system, you have to spend a ton of time really optimizing the structure of your learning algorithm and the nature of the training you do on it. You have to spend a ton of time on it. We're talking months of like months or years of a team of people working on something like the AlphaGo is a huge amount of team of people and money and computing time and stuff. So you, general is not part of this. These things aren't going out there and learning on themselves or training themselves. Like this is, it still takes a lot of work to build these things. Yeah. It doesn't mean that computers have developed a consciousness. No, it's still very not. much dependent on humans and the programs that we input. That's right. Them. Yeah. So, okay. So, but what is, you know, what is different about these AI functions versus an Excel spreadsheet or these uh, if then statements, something like that. And, and I would say actually uh, in, in, in some sense, like really actually nothing, it's just a lot more complex, but that added complexity uh, actually gets you a lot of things. It's, you, you can't uh, do speech recognition with an if-then uh, kind of program. You actually need the complexity. So even though it actually it really is just curve fitting, Ben's 100% correct, it is just curve fitting. That complexity of the machine learning algorithm, I just did the scare quotes uh, for everybody in the podcast. <laughs> We're going to be doing a lot of those. Yeah. This is going to work. <laughs> uh, the scare quotes, uh, machine learning, it, you know, it is just curve fitting, but it's really, really complicated curve fitting. And that complexity allows you to solve really complex problems that previously had been thought to be kind of outside of the ability of computers. So like now robots with machine learning techniques can teach themselves to walk. Getting robots to walk was thought to be, uh, I forget there's some paradox, but uh, this guy described how tasks which are very easy for humans can be incredibly difficult for computers or robots, mm -hmm. like walking or speech recognition or recognizing dog versus wolf. Computers and are really bad at interpreting three-dimensional space. That's one of the worst. Part of it, yeah, yeah absolutely. understanding context. Mm -hmm. And so these really, these really uh, complicated machine learning AI tools now can solve these problems that we thought were too hard, like spe speech recognition. But this also like raises a lot of problems uh, because uh, there are all these things which we didn't think we were ever going to have to worry about or deal with with computers, but now is happening, like facial recognition. So computers now are getting really good at facial recognition in some contexts, but that like that has a bunch of issues. Wasn't it in China that they've started giving police um, like a type of sunglass or glass that can help to visually recognize people so they can try to track um, people who have like a warrant out for their arrest so that they can scan a crowd and kind of easily separate hmm. out faces to try to find somebody that might um, be looked for. That's very minority the right report. Word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is hardcore dystopian. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know how advanced this, how good it is, but I think it's something they're at least 
working on that I think is being used in the real world. Yeah. yeah there's a number of dangers in the space, and that's sort of my biggest one, is that this empowers you to digest so much data that was already accessible. Like, we tend to run privacy by, you can see these things and you can't see these things, but there's so many things that we have traditionally been able to see, like your face, or you're just in a crowd, but there's just so much data, and it may or may not be recorded, that it's just not digestible, and you can get so many insights by letting a computer process that. So it's a digestion tool. And so we may actually get those kind of dystopian kind of state uh, for surveillance functions from things that are normally publicly available, but we didn't know you could draw those kind of insights. Like the, the metadata story from the, the Snowden release yeah. and from other kind of leaks, that we can draw so much from your cell phone metadata, tapping your phone actually isn't that big of a deal anymore. You can probably get more information from the metadata. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, or going back to our previous podcast on genetic security uh, with these AI tools now, uh, de-anonymizing all sorts of different kind of data. It's basically what Ben was talking about. De-anonymizing all sorts of different kind of data is becoming a lot more uh, doable with these AI tools. So, you know, forget about it with genetics, but also like any kind of data that's released publicly for research, census data, data and various kind of surveys or something where they try to anonymize it mm -hmm. and then the AI can unscramble it. Um, yeah, it's really scary. You made the other point, though, about how you don't often know what the computer is doing. That yeah. It's sort of invisible to you how it's learning how to do these different things. And that's very powerful because it, it's an extra creative tool that we can use. Um, but it's also problematic for understanding the tool, improving the tool, regulating the tool. Absolutely. Because it's very opaque to the user. And so we have seen that these AI programs can have uh, a lot of inherent bias in them. Some of them are really funny. Like if you make a Twitter bot that learns from Twitter how to talk to other humans, it becomes the most racist, Nazi, <laughs> the horrible homophobe that you can possibly interact with. We see the same thing when we look at resume readers mm -hmm. uh, that when you, you teach a resume, how, how, a computer how to read a resume, and then you tell it these kinds of candidates became really successful. Uh, there was one resume reader that found the most the, the greatest indicators of success in a resume are the name Jared and the fact that it played lacrosse in college. Oh, my God. <laughs> so all it's doing is just find this societal racism. Yeah. Not and actually. Amplified. Yeah. It. And it's amplifying in a way. And now, in many ways, that's also a good thing because now it's telling you these are the kinds of biases that we're finding in the system. So it's identifying things that we may not have seen otherwise. And it's, it's helping us think about problems that may have gone by the wayside. Yeah, it could be a good way of identifying biases, but the problem is it all has to be used in the right way. I think we hinted a little bit last week about how this has been used. Um, well, it could be used. I don't know if it's actually been implemented in things like prisons and deciding how long somebody should be sentenced or how long somebody should get parole can, ident again, or amplify racial biases or other sorts of biases based on who's currently in the prison population who may have ended up there because of other mm -hmm. biases in every step of the legal system. So we have to be careful in thinking about how we use these things. And, you know, artificial intelligence could greatly improve our efficiency and our accuracy in a lot of ways, but could also make things a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll just add to that is that, you know, AI right now is really, is just beginning. And the idea that we know exactly how to use it appropriately and properly, and, you know, we are slowly identifying that it can cause problems and can actually highlight racial biases or whatever else that we have. I think we definitely have to be careful about not over relying on it and not making these false promises that it's going to solve this or that. At the same time, as we become more functional with it and as we learn from AI and as AI learns itself and we can kind of tailor it, I think then we actually might have, you know, a pr you know, be able to use it very effectively to get the results that we want while getting rid of those biases and getting rid of those other problems that in a novel technology might be there, especially something like this. So I totally agree, but I'm not convinced it's that unique. 
how is this? How are we at some cusp of some revolution? Like all this stuff could be said about the graphing calculator as well. Oh my God, accountants are going to be put out of work and we're going to be able to do so much kind of math. We'll understand everything about the way government and budgeting works. I'm I'm, going to ask. All right. So I I will talk about. Convince me that this is so special. I I will. Fine. Okay. So I'll talk about pathology because that's what I do know about. And, um, you know, AI is definitely becoming a very big thing. In the medical world, uh, specifically when it comes to image processing and things of that sort, because human beings get tired, they make mistakes. When you've been looking at images for 10 hours straight, you are going to miss things that are right there in your face. So they've already done studies. They've actually done many studies with many companies. Google has gone into this. Other smaller companies have done this. You can actually, you can basically set up a, a path reader pretty quickly online. It's what IBM Watson was designed yeah. for. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, there's many companies that have done this, and they've already shown that these computers can do better than human beings. So like as an example, so something that in pathology you do all the time is you look at lymph nodes and you're looking for metastasis in the lymph nodes and you're looking for very small little pockets of cells and I mean really theoretically even individual cells. It's very tedious, very tiresome, time consuming for a human being to do. A computer has already been shown that it can do a better job than a human being and it doesn't get tired, it can go 24 seven, doesn't stop, doesn't make mistakes. Theoretically. Now, it does. No, yes. no, 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 hold on. Hold on. That's more, no, no, it, no, no, it can make. Yes. So, what they found is that human beings make a certain kind of mistake and the machines make another kind exactly. of mistake. Mm. You're right. But the thing, the thing that is, is different about this is that this thing can learn and evolve. And, and, you know, if you looked at old technologies that were mostly mechanical technologies, they were fixed and they, they could not progress or evolve or change how they did things. In machine learning, the whole concept is that you can get better, you can improve yourself and you can get better. And I mean, and it's not the human being doing it, it's the computer doing it. So, But you're already leveraging that it's learning from the human's behavior, which is the same thing we've had with mechanical machines, that you well, have no, this human tool interaction and they're both improving each other. Well, no, I mean, because if you look at how machine, I mean, machine learning begins with, um, yeah, it absolutely begins with human input to establish what is correct and what is incorrect, and that's that's totally fine. But for example, in the example of AlphaGo, right, they they reached the limit of what human beings could do. So they just had the computer play itself, and it just got way better than any human being mm. could possibly be. So, the, so the thing is, like, if you look at pathology, right? So they've already shown that a computer can analyze things that a human being physically cannot see, right? Like the information is there just can't see it yeah Mm -hmm. there will come a point where at least my opinion there will come a point where the computer can make a more accurate diagnosis than a human being why would you ever trust a human being that is looking at a certain number of things and look the truth is this is the dirty secret here (laughs) sometimes you know you don't you don't have you can't say i know it's exactly this blah blah blah. you'll say i got a feeling i'm gonna write that down there's a differential and i'm gonna say i think it's x y and z i favor this whatever i mean this is the best that a human being can possibly physically do. A computer, though, has a thousand other variables that it can look at and say, no, no, it's definitely this. Don't worry about it. I got you. And I can't argue with that because I have no idea what it did in the first place. Um, that, that should be disturbing. I mean, it'll take a long time to really validate those kinds of... Well, no, you're, you're right. No, it, it will take a while, which is why I don't say it's going to happen in five years, but in 20 years, because already, this has already happened. So there has been, uh, I was going to get into this later, but there has been already um, one approved device by the FDA, which does not need a human being to make a diagnosis. It's something for uh, retinopathy. 
uh, something uh, you look in the eye, and they've even tried it with just looking at using cell phone images. So you just like shine a cell phone in, take a oh, picture, yeah, and the computer can make a diagnosis without a human being present for it. So, and this is just the beginning. I mean, you know, this has been going on for five, 10 years, you know, depending on how you count it. And, you know, if you consider that there's a whole army of people that are trying to make this work, I definitely think we're looking at a paradigm shift where you're going to have, I mean, you're going to have jobs that just don't exist anymore because a human a computer can do it better. That, that's right. Opinion. That's right. And, and actually, I, I think the vast majority of what doctors do in particular is yeah. something that's automatable. It, the way to think about... Hopefully we're not crapping on doctors here. Like, <laughs> memorize stuff and diagnose. No, it's exactly, that's the majority of what doctors do is memorize stuff. Yeah, most of us know the PhD MDs, which, right. you know, you got your PhD, you're creative, you try and solve new problems, and you go to medical school and forget everything you learned in the PhD, just memorize the stuff and don't worry about it. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, computers, especially ones with AI, are way better at memorizing stuff than humans. So yeah. so any kind of profession which is really routine, which is has a lot of repeated tasks, that can be automated. It eventually will be automated. So, th so this brings us into another one of the biggest concerns people have about AI, which is displacing jobs. Are the robots going to take all our jobs? You know, the robots say, took our jobs, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> you know, so I, I went to actually, there was a talk given, this was not on medicine, it was on uh, manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. And just, um, just, and this was more on robotics. It was more on the robotics side, yeah. but there's a, a melding of AI and robotics, which is happening. Yeah, yeah. the robot has uh, to know where to move. Well, yeah. well, well but it, right, and that, but the thing is now the robots can yeah. learn on their own. But this was basically, you know, it was talking about, again, kind of image processing, and it was, I think, fish. And there's this kind of uh, fish that you have to inspect to see if it has, uh, you know, uh, contamination or bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it was, right? And human beings do that, right? So. I stood up, I never asked questions in these things, I never do anything, I simply ask, but you know, we, we know now that AI can do a really good job of this and is not possible that the computer will one day replace the human being. And the response I got was basically, no, we don't see it that way and blah, blah, blah. But it was no answer to that question. And, I, and these, were, this was like, these were like you know, academics and professors and industrial leaders. And I, I don't think, I, I think people are underestimating just how mm -hmm. disruptive this thing can conceivably be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just low-level right. jobs right, that we yeah. think about, things that you don't need a higher education to do, like manufacturing, potentially, or, you know, being an Uber driver, for example, that could potentially get replaced with automated cars. But it's it's all kinds of jobs. So mm -hmm. I know, uh, for example, one of the, the jobs that could potentially be replaced is actually journalism. Mm -hmm. And you think to yourself, well, like, how could that be? You have to write things. You have to think about what you're going to write. Well, no, a computer can, you know, can figure out how journalists typically write and take information and put it into sentence and, and form this is and spit one of these it out. Things, yeah. Which is not coming, is here. Some of the yeah. articles you read already are written by AIs. Okay, so while I don't disagree Wait, with any who, of the facts, who, who does that? Wait, hold on. I want to know <laughs> who, who does this. I, I, I don't. I, I'm not going to throw any, uh, oh, that's so any cool. under the bus. But yeah, so especially when you read like a really short little article. Are you and, serious? That's awesome. Yeah. All right. No, they're already. Yeah, especially that. if it's cool. just factual. If it's not <laughs> right. an op-ed or it doesn't yeah. require much interpretation, but they it's just this written. event happened, breaking news, yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's like we're, we're sitting here talking about all these crazy things: doctors, journalists, like drivers. They're already. That's already happening. It's not so, coming. It's no, happening. No, yeah. no. Uh, I don't like disagree with the fact. So in the landscape of what AI can do, I think you're focusing all on the peaks 
those are not a representation of the average altitude of what I, I can consistently be relied upon to do. Um, it's funny because I'm always seen as this technological optimist, but I don't, I don't agree with the narrative that, that this is going to be taking away jobs. And, but it already has taken away jobs. It supplements jobs. It cha- of course, it distorts the market. Of course, it's going to be disruptive. But it's it's not like I you're mean, taking a computer and replacing a person. So yeah. well, let's let's get into the details. I suppose. So uh, one of the things you were talking about, Asa, is, is about this this cooperation between computers and people. And this is the the policy handle as to how to make we make sure we're controlling what AI can do. There's a distinction between a human being in the loop and a human being on the loop. So if a human's in the loop, like every time the computer does something, it checks with the human. Okay, did I do a good job? Should I keep going? The human has to be able to say, okay, keep going for the computer to keep going. On the loop means that the computer is going to keep going. The human might be able to stop it if it needs to, but it isn't watching everything. It isn't monitoring everything. And there's a big distinction between those two. Replacing a job intuitively is about the same as a human being on the loop. Like maybe you have one person in a headquarters that's managing um, all the self-driving Ubers mm-hmm. as opposed to a human being in the loop, which is a self-driving car where you can stop it. And well, even that's kind of on the loop in the loop. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, even human on the loop right. is kind of uh, cruise control where you yeah. can stop at any time. Yeah. You need. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, look in medicine, even it's already happened. So, you know, if you, if you get a blood smear, right. And it's clean, chances are a human being didn't look at it. Right. It was a computer that went through it, looked through it and said, nothing, nothing's bad here. Off you go. It is only if the, the computer flags something and says, you know, I think I see X, Y, or Z, a human being will look at it. But you can absolutely have um, blood tests that go out that a human being was like, well, it, it came back all good, so moving on with our lives. But it I, didn't take a pathologist's job. It made the pathologist well, focus no, it, on the no, better No, it took things. a text job. It took, it did take, oh, took a yeah. text job away. So, I mean, because the texts do screen them, right? So, uh, I mean, it used to be that a tech would have to do it, and then if, they, if sure. the tech caught something, it goes to the pathologist, et cetera, et cetera. But you're not doing that anymore. So, you know, if there's, if there's an abnormal result, the tech will look at it and then send it to the pathologist's way. But I, I mean, but I'm talking about this is stuff from 20 years ago yeah. or, or more. Yeah. And that was, that was again, very sort of uh, brute force method of going through, you know, looking at what, what, you know, looking at an image and saying, okay, I see this, this, this or not. But, you know, the machine learning now is doing things that, human beings can't even explain fully. And that, that becomes a whole regulatory issue, but right. um, which we can get into. But just from a capability perspective, I, I mean, there comes a point where why would I even trust a human being over the machine? And anecdotally, sure, if in one case you take that one person's job, but in general you've now made the entire office so much more productive, you've likely created more jobs than you actually killed. So, wait, but I'm, I'm not, well, which job did I create from that? Yeah. I'm not convinced, what, I didn't create <laughs> That's any That's what's job so difficult here. about this conversation. Yeah. Like we've, we, we talked about how really unique are these tools, and I, I definitely wouldn't describe them as being that unique, but we've seen this for for a thousand years, you get disruptive technologies, but overall, you actually gain economic growth. You gain productivity. That's right. This is this is the story of technological unemployment. Uh, whenever there are big advances in technology, people get freaked out about technological unemployment. This is the original story of the Luddites, yeah. uh, who was smashing the the mills or whatever it yeah. was. Um, this was the the weaving, right? Yeah, the weaving yeah, machines. That's right. Yeah, because they had machines. to weave by hand. 
Um, and, and it happened with uh, automating manufacturing uh, in the 70s, which actually did like actually have a huge negative. <laughs> yeah. It did displace a ton of jobs in that case, just like the Luddites. They actually did have their jobs displaced. Yeah. But the history of economic, of technological unemployment is exactly what Ben is saying, is that even though some jobs get displaced, actually the overall economy winds up growing because of increased productivity, and those people are able to find new jobs in the bigger economy now. Mm-hmm. That's how technological unemployment has always gone. Yeah. I, and I, we are right now, we're five, you know, 10 years into AI and machine learning right now. We are seeing zero signs of decreased uh, uh, employment. Right now, actually, in the United States, unemployment is at uh, unimaginably uh, low numbers. Like, yeah. economists didn't think it could be this low, actually. Yeah, I think I heard today it's at like 3.6% right. or something. Yeah, it used to be 5% was considered the floor, and we're, we've been under 5 for a while now. So just because the economy is growing and like overall employment and stuff continues to grow and stuff doesn't mean individual jobs or even individual sectors of jobs won't be displaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the people at the post office used to read letters. That job doesn't exist anymore. Pathologists are going to cease to exist. Radiologists are going to cease to exist. There'll be a few of us. There'll be a few of us left. Somebody has to check it. Someone has to check every now and then. So yeah, you got two pathologists for the, you know, for an entire metro, you know, area. Like I was not very popular in my residency. I would say this all the time. But then we'll find the computer's reading blood smears by saying what is the color and the age of the western blot that it's looking at and it actually wasn't going off of the blood at all then, then maybe the blood isn't doesn't matter i mean like who, i don't know right <laughs> you know we'll, we'll see like if it, if the tool is doing a bad job like you need to fix the tool or find a different tool of course but drivers are going to cease to exist doesn't mean like the auto industry is going to shrink in jobs or like jobs around the auto industry is going to shrink shrink but the actual the job of driver will disappear all right well all right i'm gonna counter a little bit here because my question, because here's the thing, when you look at all of the new technology, and I, I agree with you, historically speaking, it is always true that when jobs were displaced, people were able to move into uh, new jobs because there were new technologies and new opportunities and all of these things. 100% agree with that. The only, the, the only thing is I don't, under, I don't see why that model has to work out this time around. Right. And the reason I, I have a problem is that it used to be always that it, it was, you know, it was mostly... Uh, manual labor kinds of things, mm-hmm. or you know, a job that you didn't need a very high education for, or that could be kind of, you know, y- you didn't have to use your mind as much to yeah. do these jobs. Tedious tasks. Exactly, they were tedious tasks, and they were kind of unpleasant and usually monotonous, and you just kind of you, you could do them, right? But now we're talking about jobs that are almost are entirely mental and and test our cognitive capabilities and. If the physical stuff that we, you know, it used to be that you needed people to lift rocks, right? Now we have robots that can lift rocks. That's great, fantastic, and we can do that. But you still needed people to think because that was the only thing that we had. Nothing else could think. If the machine now can think, where are the human beings going? Because I, I'm now you've I, lost me. Because what do you mean by think? Because that's a big. Well, I mean think in the sense of get the right answer. However, however you, I mean whatever you want to call thinking, right? I mean you can call thinking analyzing. anything. You, you can call it analyzing. I, I mean having some intelligence. Whatever, however we want to call it, is we want an end product. We want an mm-hmm. end result. And if the machine can do it as well as a human being, if not better than a human being, and I'm saying, I'm, and if we are open to the possibility of that happening that a robot, a machine, could actually be equal to a human being in cognitive capacities for whatever conclusion that is. If that's playing a game, making a diagnosis, whatever, where are the human beings going? And I mean, this is why I just, I have a problem seeing that model translating here, because I do think this is somewhat of a paradigm shift. But if there's a place for humans to go, 
Fantastic. I just, I'm just well, not sure. Do you know where. what the biggest sector of the American job economy is? It's the service industry. Mm-hmm. So, like, you, you could replace some of that with computers, but probably not in general. We're already there in many ways. Well, you mean you talk, what are you talking about? Like, like nurses? And, well, I mean, you're talking about things like wait, restaurants. So, these, yeah. I mean, well, those people are being replaced. Yeah, too. those you people can now order on a too. tablet at your computer, uh, your desk, yeah. your table. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're right, but so, I mean, we're talking yeah. now of a society that does either service or. Or what? I, I'm just so. So I think one thing to to uh, to keep in mind here is that we can't predict what the new jobs will be. That's so true. when uh, w- you know, people could not have predicted 30 years ago that like one of the best paying jobs you could possibly get that like millions of people are going to be employed in is computer programmer, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it, yeah. we don't know what the new jobs will be. So I think there's That's some true. futility in having this discussion. But the other thing is, like, I, I want to disagree and agree with you. I, I agree with you that there's no reason history has to keep repeating itself. There's no mm-hmm. reason that technological yeah. unemployment always means a bigger economy, which means uh, unemployment doesn't go through a catastrophe. There, there's no reason for that. And, and this may be a difference. You know, it's always the same until it's different. I, I don't know. But on the other hand, like I tend to try and right, like sure. put some faith in history, and like if we keep seeing these cycles over and over and over again, what is the likelihood that this time is going to be so dramatically different? So you know, I I don't know is the answer. Well, and let's say that that is the case. Why is full un- full employment necessarily a good thing? Yeah. Why shouldn't we all not have to work anymore? Maybe you have the five or ten percent that are, you know, checking on the computers do things. Yeah. That'd be great. We can all do art and music. No, and- this is the Marxist dream. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. just have a universal <laughs> basic income and everybody's happy. So yeah, I mean, maybe we're there. I don't know. Well, right. So I mean, so it could be that we're going into a brave new world, and we'll find out how things work <laughs> and how yeah. they look. A radical cultural shift, I think, before we can get to that utopia when people identify so much of their lives around their work. I mean, that's like well, the yeah. first question we ask each other when we yeah. meet somebody new, right? It's yeah. what do you do for a living? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Senator Sherrod Brown it's likes to talk about more of a cultural about, disruption yeah. potential. That's right. Senator yeah. Brown likes to talk about the dignity of work. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that is one problem with the kind of like nobody works concept. Is yeah, exactly what Laura was saying. We, strongly identify. This is definitely where we're getting kind of Marxist, but I'll just, just put, a, <laughs> put a flag in all that. I don't think anything's even close like that is going to happen. I don't think we're anywhere near that. So when I was in, in grad school, this sort of is, is one of these problems. Uh, I spent about two years, and I'm not a good coder, trying to write a program that could identify steps in a line. Just look for steps. But the problem is that computers, I can teach it how to recognize this pattern, but I could also just recognize the pattern. I could just do it. Our brains are really well-evolved pattern-recognizing machines. And so, you know, I could read the pattern myself, but how could I prove to anyone I wasn't biased in the way I was analyzing my data? I could have a computer be unbiased, but how could I actually have it do a good job? And the light bulb moment was, well, I just let a computer scramble the data and access my brain as efficiently as possible and I just hit buttons really fast and use my pattern recognizing brain and so you had this computer brain in, uh, cooperation which actually was the best of all worlds our brains are a specific kind of computer and they can do things that these silicon computers can't do put them together you get the, the best of everything I have, a, I have a hard time seeing a silicon computer which is fundamentally different in many ways than our wet com- soggy computers in our head what do you- Okay. <laughs> that that actually <laughs> cooperation between the two is always going to be the optimal. Yeah, and that's what people find with things like playing chess or playing Go is the human plus computer right now always beats either human or computer. Yeah, and that's been the case since World War II. You have Enigma machines, mm-hmm. you have calculators, all these things. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see. So there's nothing fundamentally that different. <laughs> <laughs> so if... AI does have the potential to displace jobs and potentially disrupt our cultures and economies. 
there's been some movement lately to have government kind of step in to encourage AI adaptation. So, um, yeah, why would we why would we want to have AI developed nationally, and what's kind of the advantages of this? Yeah, so so that's so thank you, Laura. Let's turn to policy. Really spurred by the sky high expectations that we've kind of been talking about here, that we're going to like get all this better healthcare, we're going to you know be able to automate all these uh, incredible things, and, and by also like economic interests in being first mover and intellectual property and stuff. Uh, the last several years has seen countries across the world racing to get out in front of these AI technologies and ensure that their companies, their researchers, and their militaries have a strategic advantage and aren't left behind in the uh, presumably uh, forthcoming AI revolution. So just as no two countries have identical healthcare systems, no two countries have identical AI national strategies. That's a a kind of broad umbrella term that people have been giving to how uh, countries conceive of their entirety of AI policies. Uh, But there are some similarities between most countries' AI national strategies. Uh, Most of them feature these huge investments in AI R&D. Most of them uh, include efforts to boost a computer science literate workforce. And usually these are balanced with policies which are aimed at helping workers who may be displaced by automation. Uh, And usually these AI national strategies... uh, Uh, have a lot of concepts in place, a lot of tools in place to increase both public and private sector uptake of AI-based tools. Uh, So the U.S., uh, we're a bit late to the game in putting out an AI national strategy, but in February this year, President Trump issued an executive order laying out the American AI Initiative, or the AAII for short. Uh, And so though it may come as a surprise to some observers of this administration, this executive order, it's actually quite a good start as an aspirational start to a full-fledged U.S. AI national strategy. Can I interject here? So I just want to interject a little bit about national strategies. I think for most people that aren't in the government, don't really know what that means. It's Mm. just kind of a a a phrase that people use so that we feel like we're on top of the issue. Uh, We deal with national strategies a lot. Um, there's the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, the national military strategy, the national, I don't know, some version of health opioid strategy, healthcare yeah. strategy. And when you read these things, they're like, okay, well, duh, nobody disagrees with that. Like, we should care about Americans' healthcare. We should defend the United States. It seems so banal. that it, it, Why did anybody even bother to write it down? It's, it's something that seems so cliche, you wouldn't even see it in a speech. Now, for somebody who works in the executive branch, it's actually really useful because when I go into a meeting uh, and I have a proposal... I have no authority with which to say we should do this thing. But if I have this national strategy that I can take with me, I can say, this will help us fulfill this strategy. Same goes the other way. When somebody goes to a meeting and pitches something that's stupid, like let's say uh, it's really important that we use these kinds of seat cushions in an F-35. Well, unless you can show that this fulfills some kind of a strategy that actually improves the lethality of the equipment, then I now have this national strategy to show. Um, it's the kind of thing that it's good to have written down. You need some fundamental starting place. But there's a challenge in, in making strategies so broad that you have now um, passed on all the important detailed decisions to people that weren't elected, um, but also giving just enough flexibility that you empower the experts that are actually on the ground and probably don't know all the things that the president or even the secretary level knows. That's right. And in my opinion, a good strategy should include uh, like what is the problems we're trying to solve? Like what are our general goals and what are some steps to take? 
Uh, and as Ben said, these steps don't have to be super detailed, but you should at least have some uh, outline of the steps you're going to take. Mm-hmm. And so so the AAII actually does cover most of the important areas that I think a comprehensive national AI national strategy should. It covers uh, R&D by directing federal research funders to prioritize AI R&D, though it doesn't give any kind of specifics. Um, it covers the critical, the really critical issues of data availability uh, and computing resources. As we were talking about earlier, these AI tools are only as good as the uh, having access to training data and, and good training data. So data availability is really key. Uh, and again, this in AI, AAII is uh, covered by kind of vaguely directing federal agencies to work on these areas um, while somehow thinking about privacy concerns, again, with no details. Um, and the AI, AAII actually does mention the, uh, ext- the often very overlooked issue of technical standards, uh, which is something we were kind of hinting at earlier when people were talking about reliability and, and uh, repeatability that would be covered in technical standards. Uh, the workforce section of the AAII focuses on kind of traditional education support, so like you know making sure people know how to use, uh, can program and stuff, but it, it doesn't have anything about kind of future of work, displaced worker kind of issues, um, actually. And then finally, the AAII calls for balancing uh, keeping international markets open for American AI industries, which are currently the bet, like the the gold standard uh, of of American AI is what's happening in the private sector. Um, so, but they so that we want to be able to like trade internationally with these companies, but they also still the AAII coming from President Trump has a lot of kind of protectionist things in it as well. So, what are some things um, that we th- wish that the AAII would have? Free ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the <laughs> one of the things I think that's important in developing a AI national strategy is that you do need um, talent. That, as yeah. we've discussed, machines are not fully conscious yet, and so they're not um, creating Hopefully their own. Stay that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're not creating their own algorithms necessarily, or their own. They're not necessarily identifying problems that they are going to then solve right and so we still need people kind of monitoring these things coming up with what machine learning could be used for and really implementing it and so i think um a good national strategy should include both education within the u.s but also potentially a means of recruiting people from around the world to really bring in the best and the brightest to help um develop our ai national strategy that's right, and I'm glad you brought that up, Laura, because uh, I think this is, this concept of bringing the best and the brightest from around the world to the United States has been one of the things that has uh, helped the U.S. Uh, prosper tremendously over the last century. It's been a, really a bedrock of our of our nation's prosperity is bringing the best and the brightest from around the country. Uh, the current immigration policies of this administration are somewhat antithetical to these kind of goals, and I think that's concerning to a lot of people. Yeah, so I, I know at least there's kind of a nominal push for highly skilled workers, yeah. right? But at the same time, if I if I remember correctly, like the number of HB1? H1B. H1B, thank you. Visas is, is down. They're trying to decrease the amount of them. I know it'll be harder um, to, to be an academic under this type of visa, for example. There's more kind of prioritizing U.S. Um, people within academics and within the space yeah. and science Yeah, another concerning stat is we've seen um, in the last few years applications to PhD programs from certain countries, for example, India, have really dropped off precipitously uh, just in the last few years. Really? Why is that? Uh, I, I didn't hear that. The travel ban. The travel ban. There's a lot of people in India who are concerned that they might get caught up in the travel ban at some future date. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there or, were also stories when the president had proposed a new sort of merit-based immigration system yeah. that actually it was going to really help South Asians because uh, they tend to be a little bit more qualified, but then they run into these caps. Yeah. yeah but that hasn't been actually put into yeah. effect. There's a little bit more worry that they would be deported. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that was really missing from the AII, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, is any kind of calls or measures or any details at all for increasing public sector use of AI tools. This is something a lot of countries have been putting a lot of effort into, is making sure that the government is using AI tools. And I think this is a good idea because uh, it kind of has a double whammy effect. One, you're like, you're putting money into AI, you're buying AI products from companies, you're spurring development. But two, you're also like improving the government. You're getting uh, better governance out of it. So I'm kind of curious what you guys think as you know, we all work in the government. Like, do you think it would be cool to have some AI tools? Do you think there are places where you think productivity Activity could be improved uh, near where you work? Well, I know um, that at least on the social sciences side, there's sort of a move toward this. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily, it depends on what you mean by AI, I think, but there's more moves to use big data, at yeah. least, um, in implementing how services are delivered to people, how people um, interact with government services, so tweaks to how letters are designed, for example, and mm-hmm. doing randomized control trials so that um, a letter designed one particular way might lead to greater uptake of enrolling in FAFSA, for example, yeah. than a letter designed another way. Um, but some of the big concerns about this, and I think with a lot of government data, is that it's um, it's human data. It's it's based on your information. And you may not realize that the government has has your information, but if you're using government services, you're part of large data sets. And so that's one concern about about bringing this into the public sector is that getting people's consent to use their data and also keeping things um, private and making sure that their information doesn't get out. So the danger of AI is that now you can do things with the same data you had a long time ago, that even a lower level of data, if you have the right tools, you can't do it. But to answer your question about public sector AI in general. We're all used to the idea of the government landing a man on the moon and secrets in the human genome and building the first nuclear bomb, but that's just not where the center of gravity is in innovation anymore in the United States. That's just not the country we live in. The exciting stuff is happening in AI. Uh, Drone technology is better in the toy industry than it is often in the public sector. Uh, These tools aren't nearly as good at the government level. There's a lot of reasons for that. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. One of the contexts that, that we get into here is that China is investing heavily in AI tools. Yeah, way more. Also, than also yeah. just in data in anticipation of we don't even know what this data is going to be good for, mm-hmm. but we have such good AI tools that's going to be the case. They're definitely much more the United States from the '50s, where the government does these big, cool, or scary things. Mm-hmm. In the United States, that's all in the private sector. There was this idea that China is spending X billion dollars on a military AI center. Therefore, the United States must be doing that thing. And I don't get that at all. No, no. Why does the U.S. need to spend as much as China in the public sector? We have amazing Google and Amazon employees that do this thing. If it ever came to a military conflict, we don't know yet how to leverage that power. But that is still the American asset is in the private sector, not the public. Yeah. And I think what, what, what I am calling for with public sector uptake of AI tools is public sector like buying private sector AI tools, exactly. not, not developments. No, 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 no. It's like I want the government to like buy an AI, like a, a team of AI people to develop something for, you know, whatever to use. All of us would like the government to get out of the Stone Age and some of this yeah, technology. Exactly. Well, what, do you, what do you mean by buying AI tools? Because when I think about AI, I think about free source software, such as like Python, for example. Well, Exactly. So this is what exactly. I was saying is yeah. that is that it these tools are not general yet. It still takes a huge amount of effort and very like practiced, uh, very high level skills to get these things to work well. 
Uh, so like the optical character recognition that empowers the post office, for example, that's like that. That's almost plug and play now because that stuff was developed so long ago. But to do it in a way that is like actually makes uh, is super high accuracy for the post office, that takes a, a whole company of, to develop that software. So it's sort of yeah, contracting yeah, people exactly. to develop programs. Yeah. Basically. So I'll give you an example. In Congress, uh, we get a, a huge part of what happens in Congress is we answer your letters. People write to uh, their Congress uh, people. Um, and, and now it's like mostly emails um, and they say hey what's going on with this thing or I really want you to vote this way or I want you to do something about X, Y, or Z thing you really and, want an AI tool to be able to answer those letters to forget <laughs> some staff time so what you want that's right so <laughs> that's like exactly, the AI yeah. tool could answer the letters but also it could like help sort them that's like yeah. they spend yeah. a bu- our staff spend a bunch of time sorting the letters just so that they go to the right staffer who handles that, that portfolio like you know forget about answering the letter like the AI could just sort them yeah, say so answering doesn't sound so great to me because that basically means that Congress has to be less responsive to you, right? That they can put it off somewhere else. But it's, I think it could be powerful in sorting, like you said, yeah. that you can count more efficiently how many people are raising this concern or this issue or what's mm-hmm. important to people. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I know that letter writing's already pretty automated on form letters, but yeah. Um, yeah, you want, in some ways, you don't want the government to just be able to respond to you automatically. Well, I mean, I'll I'll add just kind of my input. So I'll I'll stay mostly away from the military stuff, um, but I, I'll just simply leave it as that there are actually people who are are aware of um, you know the potential to use AI and you know big data and things of that sort, and they are and they are you know seriously interested in doing it. And I'll leave it at that. But um, I'll say you know if you look at things like you know Medicare and Medicaid um, and things of that sort. There actually is already, you know, kind of a, a push within Medicare to, um, you know, to to focus on, you know, quality as an example, right, and to improve that. And there's definitely even, you know, small little things that AI can do, like, um, you know, identifying high-risk patients and making sure that, you know, you have an alert that goes out that the doctors can see it or the nurses can see it and say, okay, just make sure that, you know, you know where this patient is going because if you discharge them, they might just end up on the street again. You know, things, there are like little things like that. And um, I think there actually is an interest in that. I, I, I'm trying to remember because I, I was actually doing a, a project, this was a couple of years ago now. Um, I'm trying to remember if I ever saw anything specifically using AI. I don't think it was at quite at that um, complex yet, but definitely as I, th- I think as people become more uh, accustomed to using AI and see them more in daily usage, I definitely think that there's a lot of potential, even just to correct small little things, but that adds up yeah. to a big change. So, so here's another specific example. Um, right now, your credit card company probably uses AI for fraud detection. Mm-hmm. Um, why, can't, why, sh- why can't the IRS do that? The IRS should do that, in fact. And that, yeah, like, yeah. the IRS, actually, if you don't know, is super underfunded and understaffed. This has uh, uh, been deliberate um, by some people. And if they could have these kind of automated tools, it would help them be a lot more effective at their job. Yeah, the, the, at the DoD, we're always worried about how can we hire the next generation? And I look around at my desk and I see an analog phone and like the most sophisticated software I can use is Microsoft Excel. And I'm like, I was trying to explain to these people, millennials yeah. would rather eat that phone than call anybody <laughs> on it. I don't have a Slack channel. I don't have oh any God. kind of chat. I, I can't download my own open source software. This is 
yeah, that's the way mm-hmm. that the government works. It's yeah. not quite as scary as. Or um, maybe you guys uh, have heard of the traveling salesman problem. This is a problem of how to most efficient, like FedEx or taxi cab drivers, like have to solve this problem. Basically, is like how to most of what kind of route do you take to hit a bunch of uh, stops along the way? What's the most efficient route to do that? Turns out, mathematically, that's a unsolvable problem. There is no, there's no solution to that problem. All you can do is come up with a really good, with with better solutions. You can't solvable. solve it. It's, it's just the calculations are so much that it's not impractical. No, it's unsolvable. It's, it's MP hard. With how many, with a discrete number of stops? There is no analytical solution to the traveling salesman problem. There's every I mean. combination and you just measure the distance. That's right. Yeah. That's fine. What's wrong with that? That's an empirical approach. It's not an analytical approach. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that that's still a computing problem. You can compute right. all the options, just like yeah. a chess game. Yeah. So you can do that, but yeah, but exactly like the chess game, and actually it's even closer to go. When okay. you start adding a lot of numbers, you, you, we're right. getting into incredibly high numbers of options of different possible routes. And so it, it takes a lot of computing power. So an AI, this is a task that an AI would be really good at solving, for example. You can't give it a process to find the perfect solution. You can only calculate all of them to pick the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you, I mean, you can give it a process to, there's like approaches to solving the, the traveling salesman problem with linear stuff, but with machine learning, it can be a lot better. So, you know, logistics, is that ring any bells? You guys in the department yeah, of defense, yeah. like that's, you know, these, these kind of logistical <laughs> problems is like the main thing that like wins wars, for example, and moving the military around stuff like that. And so, yeah, there you go. Good. This would, this would be something that would be really helpful for the military, for example, but also other huge parts like aid response, disaster mm-hmm. response, you know, also AIs now are really good at predicting things. So like predicting when the next disaster is going to happen, where the next conflict is going to happen could be incredibly useful for the military, but also for foreign uh, foreign aid and these kind of things. So I think there are a lot of concrete examples that would be helpful for public sector uptake. But also, again, like it's just it could be just injecting money to the AI companies, Mm -hmm. Google, Amazon, whatever startup to help them develop uh, and do more things. So in my opinion, public sector use is like really, really great. And I think we should be doing way more of it. Well, what do you mean by injecting money to these companies? Because I think that's part of the problem, (laughs) right? Is that nobody wants to hear about Amazon, who pays no taxes anyway, getting more money from our public tax dollars so they can make profit, right? So how do you envision money going to support public or private sector development? Of AI. Yeah, sure. So, so say you're uh, you're USAID and you want to be able to better predict when the next famine is going to strike based on global weather patterns and like conflict and stuff. I'm envisioning that you would go pay an AI company to contract with uh, with USAID, and they would help you develop some kind of software to do these kind of predictions. Or maybe they just do the predictions themselves, and like you collaborate with them. And so you're funneling this USAID money into this company doing the AI. You know, it could be Amazon. It's probably not going to be Amazon in this case. It would probably be a small startup or something like that. Um, and so, but now the AI industry has grown by X amount of dollars that USAID invested, but also USAID got a huge benefit out of this transaction. They now can predict better and they can, again, back to logistics, move their people and food and stuff to this area that they're predicting is going to have the issue. So this is a big policy challenge for the government because we have to be very fair in the way we award yeah. contracts. Yeah. We have to do these open bid process. It's not like I can just go to Amazon and buy the software that I want. It's really challenging for the government to do those things so that it can be really fair, but that also slows it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also are very aware of the contractor slash government employee dynamic Um so the way that any government agency can hire people, it's controlled by how much money it has, obviously, to hire people, and the number of billets it has, the number of people it can actually have as employees of the federal government. 
generally in the executive branch, billets are the limiting factor, not money. So when government needs people, instead of hiring a person, they hire a contractor. And this is often seen as a money-saving tool, but it's, it's kind of awkward and because contract, there's things contractors can't actually do. Um, but this also solves some of the problem in the AI space because if there were, hypothetically, people from Google that didn't want to work for the federal government directly or to engage, why we could pay for their product as opposed to absorbing the people. Yeah, it also, I mean, it does get a little bit complicated, too, in trading this intellectual property, basically, that yeah. a lot of private sector companies don't want to release their trade secrets, basically, mm-hmm. and they don't even want to necessarily make, you know, Facebook is not going to make all of its data public just for the benefit of social science researchers to study how people <laughs> interact, for example. And um, the same token, you have to think when you're working with government data about handing it off to a private company to make sure that they don't profit from it in some way that's not just selling the product back to the government, that they're not mining through your data and using it in their other products. And so it also gets complicated with these data sharing agreements to work out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing that that just complicates it is that it's not just enough to have the software, is that you have to train people to do that. And um, like definitely what I've seen is that there are efforts, you know, within government to uh, give training to employees so that they can use these new kinds of software and they kind of, they can actually do that. So there's, there's a whole process that it's not enough just to get the contractors, but if you're going to have your federal employees using this stuff, they also have to be trained in that. And there has to be a conscious effort that we're going to shift some of that, you know, education that federal employees get to being able to use AI effectively and knowing what it can and cannot do. Yeah, absolutely. Asa, what's your chatter for this week? Uh, okay, so I'm gonna I'm not gonna talk about anything scientific right now. I'm just gonna talk <laughs> about um, it's been a very um, not good um, year for the hiking, climbing, mountaineering community. So I don't know if you've been following this, but 11 people have died on Mount Everest. Um, there's a lot of discussion about why that is, but definitely it's because there are way too many people on the mountain. Uh, you can see pictures of like this line that just goes on for like probably a couple miles. People have been stuck up there. They're supposed to be only up there for around 12 hours. Instead, they're up there for 20 hours. Um, they do not have enough oxygen. So people have died in their tents. They've been unconscious. I mean, it's it's been a disaster. Um, so that's 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 one thing. And then there were two hikers in Hawaii. One of them was found after 17 days. Uh, so she survived, uh, which was great. And she apparently was eating... And I think like plants and something like strawberry guava or something. I was like, that sounds kind of good, actually. I don't know. That sounds okay. But Hawaii's not a bad place to go. Yeah, I was like, all right. But yeah. then, but so she's you know fine. Yeah, as long as you, I, I don't know what she was eating, but she, apparently she was okay. But then there was another one who, uh, another hiker who was found at the bottom of like a 300 foot drop or something. So he, um, did, yeah, unfortunately died. Uh, and then, um, I mean, this is a couple months ago, but we had three like very experienced mountaineers uh, that got killed in an avalanche so it has not been a good year and that's sort of because I I just do a lot of that so I'm actually going to Rocky Mountain National Park in July and we have one day where we're going to do 12 miles 3,000 feet elevation gain and then like 2,900 feet descent at 10,000 feet elevation to start and I was like huh I mean it's not Everest but I was like all right we just have to we'll be we'll be fine we'll be fine gotta make sure you're acclimated yeah Yeah. I, I mean if I don't show up after July Send a search party. You gotta, you gotta take a picture of yourself on a really long line and say that you're waiting to yeah, get over exactly, exactly. really far away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all the way down there. Right? So what's leading to the increase in people there? 
So the, basically, it's been sort of unrestricted uh, permit access, okay. and uh, I mean that's that's they've they've given out a lot of permits. They're not putting uh, a cap on it, basically. So that's so people are saying that they need to have like a lottery system because it's just it's open season right now, and on top of that. There have people are saying that there are some pretty inexperienced people up there that like don't even know how to put on like, you know, mountain boots and stuff. I mean, that's what I've heard, and I mean, that's not. I don't know. I can't verify that, but, um, but yeah, people are saying that there's just there's just way too many people. And there was actually one guy who was saying he was going to use another route to avoid these long lines, and he died. So it was just like it's it's been a bad yeah. year. They maybe need a test or something before you can get a permit. Yeah, or some, yeah. Or, well, because there, there, there are there are places yeah. where you have to be certified or something to go up there, and not for Everest though. You mm-hmm. can just sign up and you're good to go. That's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Light stroll. <laughs> yeah, come on. Okay. Um, so what I can't let go, I guess, this week, or what I'll be chatting about at happy hour, is that there have been a lot of tornadoes this week, including a massive one that's reported to be a mile wide, where I went to graduate school at the University of Kansas. It landed about A mile wide? Yeah. It's a a land hurricane. Yeah, I mean, it was, the pictures of it are massive, but it was also rain-wrapped, and so it's hard to tell exactly where the tornado is in there, but it it hit me close to home because it was touched down like two miles from where I used to live. And so I was very concerned for um, friends that still live in Lawrence that were, you know, hiding in their their bathtubs with Mm. couch cushions over them. It would like could have really caused a lot more damage than it did. I don't think there actually ended up being any fatalities from it. So I could be wrong. But um, so shout out to the meteorologists uh, out there for really warning people in advance and making sure everybody got safe. Um, but one of the things that I've been thinking about is, is just sort of why there have been so many tornadoes and kind of unexpected places a lot in like Ohio, there's one in New York, places that don't typically get tornadoes. And, um, I'm not a meteorologist, so excuse any facts that I get wrong, but, um, Vox published an article kind of talking about why there have been so many that have been bad. And at least one of the factors is that there's been, um, an unusually strong jet stream this year, which fuels, um, some tornadoes, but they're kind of notoriously difficult to predict and to, to really tell, um, where they're going to show up. And, and they said it seems meteorologists have said, it seems like there's a lot of tornadoes, but there's maybe only... 1500 a year or so, I think I read. And that sounds like a lot to me, but they said that's actually not very many um, data points, especially when they're showing up under varying conditions and in different places. It's actually hard to kind of be able to build a model to really predict it. And maybe this is something AI can also help us out Definitely with. Is, yeah, weather prediction. Is weather prediction. Yeah. Something that's interesting about tornadoes, I didn't, I didn't know until recently, is that this is actually kind of a unique thing to the U.S. There are tornadoes that happen in, the, in yeah. other parts mm-hmm. of the world, but for the, the ma- vast majority, basically happen in the United States. Kind of interesting. Another thing that's kind of hard to quantify, North America is about the most dangerous place for natural disasters oh. in the world. <laughs> Depending on how you quantify it, it actually is one of the most effective. <laughs> we take that for granted because we're, <laughs> we're used to it. Yeah. Well, we are a big country too. So, you, you know, you've got, yep. yeah, coastal disasters, plains disasters, all kinds of yeah. things. Earthquakes. A lot of earthquakes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to be chattering about T-Rex. I'm going to be chattering about dinosaurs. Uh, this is one of those I've had in my pocket for a while, wait until I didn't have a chatter, but there's, there's actually news about this. So uh, before I came to DC, I was teaching at the Field Museum and I would lecture for a long time about Sue the T-Rex. This is the famous uh, largest T-Rex ever found and most complete 
She's uh, over 95% complete by volume of bone, and she's about 18,000 pounds. I think what's what's interesting is that Field Museum opened with Sue in, in 2000 and has since rebuilt a new facility for her and has fixed a lot of the scientific problems with the way she was originally put together. So there are they didn't mount her belly ribs called Gastralia. They've now fixed that. They've changed her shoulder posture. Probably, I'm skeptical about the new posture, but they, they, they have affected it based on science, based on uh, a lot of good new things we've learned. They replaced uh, her, her wishbone, uh, so with something that looks a little bit more like a, a T-Rex wishbone, just like a chicken wishbone. Um, her posture is different in that she's in this really, she was in, originally in this very squat position with her knees bent, uh, mostly because it looks really cool uh, and to be in this active pose. But because she didn't have kneecaps, there's no way she could have supported her weight in that kind of crouch position. So they fixed that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's open in this new place. And it's, it's kind of cool to see that museums are reinvesting in the science and making sure that it's it's as accurate as possible. But the reason this was in the news is that she is no longer the biggest T-Rex ever found. Uh, there's a T-Rex called Scotty, which is only 65% complete. So Sue is still probably one of the most important fossils ever found not only because she's complete, but because of all the controversy behind who owned her. But Scotty was about 20,000 pounds, uh, was also found in the 1990s, but they haven't uh, put her, him together. Uh, We don't know the sex of any dinosaurs, by the way. Um, So uh, Scotty's going to be up in Canada uh, and has taken Sue's throne as being the biggest, but not most complete. So my chapter this week is about a, a, a fairly whimsical story that I, I, I still don't like really understand exactly why it has happened. But uh, uh, so for a long time, people considered McDonald's abroad to be cultural ambassadors for the United States. You know, can you think of anything more American than McDonald's? And then uh, there's McDonald's around the world and people are like, hey, it's the United States. Uh, but actually now uh, it turns out in Austria, uh, McDonald's are officially part of the State Department in some capacity, hmm. and so uh, uh, and there have been a lot of funny headlines. One of these was uh, "Mick Passport to Go." <laughs> um, so the U.S. Embassy in Austria has enlisted uh, McDonald's help in Austria, uh, and basically what is happening now is American citizens can go to any McDonald's in Austria. Uh, in in presumably some kind of like emergency situation and get connected to the uh, U.S. Embassy in Austria. Now, it's like extremely unclear to me why that is the easier option for somebody than like (laughs) using the Internet. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Now. Yeah. So now if you're in Austria and you desperately need to contact uh, to contact the embassy and also you kind of want some fries. Uh, you should be set. I don't know, maybe it's like uh, in France, we have the Royale with cheese. In Austria, what do we have? A sausage on, on a Big Mac or something? <laughs> yeah, with, the, with, the, with some lager or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that does it for this episode. Please subscribe to Beltway Science on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Rate and review us so that more people can find the show. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And email us with any feedback and topic requests to beltwayscience at gmail.com. <laughs> this episode was produced by Sujato Mani, Ben Zalisco, and Megna Chandra. For Ben, Laura, Asa, and me, Ipur Simuave, and thanks for listening. Boom. Boom.